Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're presenting the first of our summer guides. We're going to be doing these over the next month. And we're starting with Sarah Churchwell, historian of America. And she's going to be talking to us about the Gilded Age, what it meant at the end of the 19th century, and whether we're living through another one. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. We probably should start with trying to identify a time frame for this. So as I understand it, the phrase comes from a Mark Twain novel of 1873. But then when you Google it, people often say the Gilded Age started in 1873. Yet presumably Twain was talking about something that had was already in existence. How do you frame it? Yeah, well, I think so. First of all, so the poor Charles Dudley Warner always gets forgotten oh, yeah, in this he conversation. Co-authored. He co-authored it with Mark Twain. I feel we should, you know, give him due credit. Definitely. So they co-wrote this book, The Gilded Age in 1873, which was actually a kind of minor Twain work. And the phrase was basically rediscovered in the 1920s and applied retrospectively to the period of the 1870s to about 1900, roughly. People do quibble about when exactly it began. Did it begin with the end of the the American Civil War in 1865? Did it begin with the coining of the phrase in 1873? You can make economic arguments about, you know, various crashes or panics, but... There was a crash in 1873 as well. There was a crash in 1873, exactly. And actually, there were a series of crashes and recessions and panics through the 70s and 1890s that were caused by the practices of the so-called robber barons that Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner were talking about. So basically, what they were calling out was a turn in American history after the war as part of westward expansion, as part of the explosion of the Industrial Revolution, particularly in the North, of rampant, rampant corruption, corporate corruption, the building of, of monopoly capitalism, the cornering of markets, and all of that stuff created the financial instability that meant that there were all of these crashes and recessions and things through the rest of the century. The reason that Twain and Warner called it the Gilded Age, and sometimes I think people now think that, which is a kind of measure of how far we've fallen, they think that maybe that's a good thing, but it was actually a pejorative term. And by gilded, they meant just lightly covered in gilt in a cheap filament of gold, in a cheap veneer of gold. In other words, something that was tawdry and only superficially attractive, but not actually valuable. So it is, I'm jumping ahead, but I think the right metaphor is kind of Trumplandia, right? It's just picture kind of cheap gold everywhere. And that's kind of what they're saying. And if that critique is of superficiality, basically, that there's a kind of surface veneer and underneath there's something rotten, is it primarily a cultural critique? Is this a critique of a society that's got these kind of vulgar values that are being dressed up as something else? Or is it primarily an economic critique that behind the scenes of this explosion of wealth, there is this abject inequality and poverty? Well, I think it's really the the combination of the two, right? It's noticing the way that, that America was already on this path to say that, you know, wealth was going to determine everything about American culture and the pursuit of wealth and speculation and swindling and opportunism and hucksterism and salesmanship and 
I mean, we could note that the the kind of um, anti-hero of the novel, The Gilded Age, is called Mr. Sellers, Beriah Sellers, right? You know, the clue's in the name. Everybody's selling something. And he's this kind of swindler speculator who constantly has some scheme that he's trying to put over on people. And the idea that American culture was being taken over by that kind of opportunism, that salesmanship would be the order of the day and that that would become the dominant mode of American culture. And of course, that strain takes us all the way up to something like Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman, where he also sees a salesman as the kind of emblematic American figure. So they're very early on pointing out that there is this kind of move toward, um, as I say, towards sort of, you know, a hucksterist kind of a, of a culture, and that that was also working hand in glove with political corruption, so that that was going to subvert democracy. So all of the kind of ideals of America were being sold out and being sold down the river. So it really is kind of both. It's the way in which greed is subverting all of the higher ideals of America. Because one of the puzzles here is when you look at histories of America, there's another way of telling the story of that period, which is this is the period of genuine substantive economic growth and technological transformation. So those stories of American growth, which say we've now entered the phase where it's all kind of a sham, that the the dot-com version of it, there isn't real growth. But people's lives were being transformed, the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, through these crashes, not because of them, but during that period. It is also the time where that society actually was turbocharged. And poverty, of course, was still there. But the lives of the less well-off were transformed. Mm, Absolutely. So, I mean, the major transformation, technological and industrial, of the period was, of course, the railroad. In the space of a few years, the United States went from something that took, you know, six months to get across to something that took a few days to get across. And that just changes everything. That changes people's lives. That changes people's relationship to the market, their own kind of opportunity. And the move west, of course, is part of that after the gold rush, that sense that there's all this opportunity, there's all this land, and you can get to it. It's not going to take you, you know, six months of hard slog. And then, of course, that means that transport links are improved for, you know, the markets suddenly explode and all of those kinds of opportunities are there. So although we talk about the Gilded Age as a period of absolutely rampant inequality, which it was, so at the top you have the so-called robber barons, the monopoly capitalists who are the industrial tycoons who are cornering the railroads. You know, you've got Rockefeller with Standard Oil. You've got Carnegie with U.S. Steel. You've got J.P. Morgan cornering finance. I mean, literally every market you can imagine they're cornering and creating monopolies in. And then you've got vast, vast poverty, particularly among the immigrant communities. So Europeans coming in and Asians coming in, seeking opportunity and living in terrible, terrible poverty. And people could see the huge gap. In fact, in that period, they started talking about the difference between the 99% and the 1%. So even that, for us, familiar shorthand is something that they were talking about as a way to think through inequality. But even though all of that is true, it is also true that the middle class was incrementally growing. So although the gap between richest and poorest was extreme, there was also within the middle of that this kind of solid movement up, slow but steady and measurable of people out of poverty into lower middle class or middle class opportunity, working class opportunity as well, but sort of make, making their way up the economic ladder. And so it's easy to kind of try to, to make it a black or white thing. It was all bad and destructive and corrupt, and but it was. But as you say, those industrial transformations were real and the industrial revolution was taking hold and creating those kinds of possibilities. And as you say, it's also the great age of immigration. I mean, this is one of the... the great expansion periods in the American population. So does it have some of that connotation to you just hinted at it that that there is the American dream? I mean, that the language isn't quite 
yeah. right there. But so people are arriving in droves from Europe to this land of opportunity. And for many of them, of course, the experience is not of opportunity. <laughs> it is of racism and corruption yeah. and extreme poverty. And that sense that there's a kind of golden veneer behind which something really grim is going on. Yeah. Immigration is a big part of that story. Absolutely, a really important one. So immigration, from particularly from Eastern Europe in this period, explodes. So it had been Western Europe through the 1840s, 1850s, through the period of the Civil War, the German population, of course, the Irish population fleeing famine. So you have those earlier waves of immigration, but then at this point, it becomes, well, Italians as well, but then really Eastern Europeans start to really move in for the first time. People fleeing political turmoil, also fleeing pogroms. You've got a lot of German Jewish and and Eastern European Jewish population moving in, hundreds of thousands of immigrants. And it's important to understand that at this period, America did not have immigration control, right? I mean, we've got to remember that this is a world without passports. If you could get on a ship, you landed and you went where you could go. And it's hard, I think, for people to, to imagine a world in which that was the case. We now have people in the United States, you know, who are anti-immigration themselves saying things like, my great-grandparents came legally in 1880. And you're just going, no, because there were no laws again. I mean, there were no laws about it. So they, they just made they it. They just showed up. You know, what are you talking about? Right. But in fact, the first anti-immigration laws began to be passed in the 1880s and 1890s in response to these massive waves of immigration. And, and they were anti-Asian. It was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1883 that was the first major anti immigration law that forbade Chinese laborers coming into the West. And then various kinds of other anti-immigration acts started to pass. So you have that on the one hand, and then you literally have the Statue of Liberty being raised in, I think, 1883 or about that, but I mean, it's right in this period, right? And within a decade of that, Emma Lazarus's great poem saying, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And so you've got this great welcoming claim that we will bring in literally as Congress is passing anti-immigration laws. And I always think that that kind of contradiction is is sort of quintessentially American. There's also a story here, as always in American history, about race. Mm-hmm. The period that conventionally precedes the Gilded Age is the age of Reconstruction after the Civil War. Another way in which that period, 70s, 80s, 90s, is a kind of sham is that it's the point where the Civil War is kind of being pursued by other means in a way that the victory has been given up on and those racist practices that were going to dominate the South for the next century, this is when it starts. Because that's another part of the sham, isn't it? Absolutely. And so, in fact, and as as we said at the beginning, when the Gilded Age begins and ends is is a kind of loose designation. Reconstruction is really talking about the political aftermath of the Civil War, as you say, and it would normally be understood to kind of overlap with the Gilded Age. So they really kind of happen concurrently. And Reconstruction, primarily talking about the reconstruction of the American South after the war, was where the the word comes from. But as you're suggesting, what happened was, it's a kind of complicated thing after the war, you would think that what would happen with the emancipation of the slaves is that there would be some kind of redistribution of wealth, property, and assets after the war, and that black people's rights to ownership of an opportunity in the South would be opened up. But that was exactly what didn't happen. So President Andrew Johnson, who became president when Lincoln was assassinated, he was a Southerner. He had all of these pardons. He basically just pardoned the white South and they restored all of the property to pre-war owners. So all of the slave owners got their plantations back and they were all the Southern legislators. So all the people who'd been fighting for the Confederacy stayed in the local and state legislatures and they passed a raft of laws known as the Black Code which paved the way for segregation. And it established what would become known as Jim Crow, which was really slavery in all but name. Black people are still disbarred, not by
by law, but by fact, right? Um, de facto, not de jure, from basically all of the rights that they had supposedly been given. They can't get access to to property. They can't get access to decent jobs, to decent wages. They're being disenfranchised and intimidated and threatened. And of course, it's the period of the first Ku Klux Klan, which arises in order to put Black people back in their place as domestic terrorists. And they very much identified themselves as terrorists. So the Klan saw themselves in those terms, and they were there to intimidate Black people to, you know, show them still who was boss, even if they weren't slaves. And so that period also leads to what would be at the end of the Gilded Age, the Great Migration. So African-Americans leaving the South because the conditions were so dire that they move north and, and seek opportunity there. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Conventionally, what comes after the Gilded Age is the Progressive Age, but that leaves out a bit of this story, I think, which has lots of resonance for today, because what you get through the 1880s and then peaking in a way in the 1890s is the rise of populism. So populist parties, the Democratic Party being challenged by a kind of populist insurgency, a rural and racist, in many ways, populist insurgency. Those things go together. Before we get to progressivism, which kind of makes it sound like after inequality there was reform. <laughs> yeah, exactly, the bridge, which is a nice story. <laughs> yeah, the bridge between the two is yeah. is populism. Absolutely. It's the great age of populist democratic Ab- politics. Absolutely. So William Jennings Bryan, who's a really emblematic figure, I think, because again, he's somebody who embodies all of these kinds of contradictory elements in American history and culture. He was known as the prairie populist, and he ran for president three times, and he very nearly got there. And he was a proper grassroots populist in the sense that he was not a demagogue who was seeking popular power in order to become authoritarian, or at least there's no real evidence that he was. And he was very much a hero of the people, and he was speaking on behalf of the people. And he was this great orator and he was devout. He was a devout Baptist. And so on the on the one hand, he was this kind of hero of the farmers. It was known as the, it was also called an agrarian movement or the agrarian revolt. And he was speaking on behalf of farmers who felt that they were being badly treated by government policy and that their needs weren't being met. Particularly, there were big debates at the time about monetary policy, which we probably don't have to get into. But but it was very, very important at the time. And Brian was seen as this kind of, you know, man of the people who would protect the farmer's interests. But he was also, again, so we're slightly jumping ahead, but it is interesting because there are these continuities here. He lived to be an old man. And in 1925... He was, in fact, on the wrong side of history, as it were, in the Scopes Monkey Trial, where he was actually the one arguing for creationism and arguing that evolution should not be taught in the schools against Clarence Darrow, who was the great voice of progressivism. So even though on the one hand, we want to see Brian as a progressive figure in the 1890s, by the 1920s, he's arguing on the, on the side of extreme, you know, reactionary religious views and that old time religion, as it was pejoratively known. And so those populist movements are very common 
complicated. And, and it is, I think, important, as you suggest, for people to understand that history of American populism, because the ways that people are talking about how populism might be figured now seem to me to be quite ahistorical and to not see that there are these connections here. And as you said, going back at least to Jackson, who was really the kind of first populist figure, the first populist president. Up until Jackson, all of the presidents were from the elite aristocratic planter class, almost all of them from Virginia, um, specifically. And then you get Jackson, who's the first frontiersman, and he's the man of the people, and he's the self-made man and the frontiersman who made good and all of that. And there's a huge populist movement behind him. And then, as we're saying with Brian, six years later, there's another one. But the support was also, as you just said, it was what would eventually be, we would describe as white supremacist. This was about white workers, the kind of salt of the earth idea, the common man, always troped as a white yeoman farmer, asserting his right, specifically his right, not women, to determine the political shape of the country and um, to assert their economic rights, that sense that they were being left behind. So as early as Jackson, you know, in 1820, 1815, you have white farmers insisting that they're being left behind, that the white working class is not being listened to, which sort of sounds like a familiar story. And yet they're continually determining various important political milestones in the history of the nation. And there are these periodic eruptions of that kind of sentiment that is very much construed in terms of white working class men asserting their right to be the kind of middle American who should determine everything and at the cost of excluding rights or power to any other communities. And in that sense, we're just seeing the same thing again today. And it did have a strain, I'm afraid, a recognisable strain of anti-Semitism in it too, because it was the attacks on the Rothschilds from the 1890s. Sometimes things that you hear today could have been taken straight out of the 1896 presidential campaign. Yeah, absolutely. And so this idea that there was a Jewish financial conspiracy that that they were seeking to take over the world is a very old idea. And I mean, you'll have to correct me, but this is a this isn't this around when the Protocols of Elders of Zion was actually written, isn't that when the it, so it precedes it? It yeah. precedes it. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, earlier. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but it, but the arguments about the, gold and silver right, and all exactly, that are coming out. The of focus it. was on the City of London rather than Wall exactly. Street. But the, the names are the same. Yeah, it's they absolutely just, um, are. They absolutely are. And I mean, I found this again is from the 1920s, which is the period that I really researched. But I recently found a conspiracy theory that said that Alexander Hamilton um, argued for a national bank when the country was being founded because he was in the pay of the original Rothschilds. So, I mean, there are people saying that it goes all the way. And, and I've seen that online. So that conspiracy theory lingers to this day. They say that his name was Alexander Levine Hamilton and that he was a Jew who changed his name. And there's just no truth to that at all, right? I mean, it's just an absolute anti-Semitic fabrication. And this idea that the that the powers that be have always been in the pockets of the rich Jews is a very, very old idea. So if we take the story forward to the 1920s, when, as you say, the term the Gilded Age is then used to describe this period of history, but it's also being used because people think that they might be reliving some aspects of it. So a novel you've written a lot about, The Great Gatsby, is sometimes described as a Gilded Age novel or a at least trying to give an account of the ways in which some of this mm. veneer is repeating itself. Does it so as people apply it forward, because people also talk about now as another mm. gilded age, 
they're not thinking that we're reliving the 1870s, 80s, 90s. They're thinking we've re-entered a period where superficial values, hypocrisy and surface glitter mm. is concealing something mm. rotten. Mm. Is that? Well, I also understand it when it was really when I say we're in a new Gilded Age, which I say with some frequency because I think it's true. I'm, and I think other people also are, are referring as well to the age of robber barons and to the age of monopoly capitalism. I mean, I've got an extraordinary quote, if I can um, read this out, which is from a not very well remembered work called The Chapter of Erie, which is by Henry Adams, who was the grandson and great-grandson of John Adams and John Quincy Adams. And he would go on to write The Education of Henry Adams, which is the kind of one of the great American autobiographies. But before then, he did what we would now call investigative reporting, uh, what they called muckraking at the time. And he and his brother did an investigation into the cornering of the Erie Railroad. They wrote this kind of report for, again, it would have been a kind of, you know, Washington Post expose today. It was the, the corrupt practices of this group known as the Erie Ring. And what they said in their conclusion was that American democracy was going to be destroyed by this kind of corrupt corporatism. And I just think the quote is so prescient, and it's not long. So here's what they said, and this is from the 1870s. They said, the system of corporate life and corporate power, as applied to industrial development, is yet in its infancy. It tends always to development, always to consolidation. It is ever grasping new powers or insidiously exercising covert influence. Already, our great corporations are fast emancipating themselves from the state, or rather, subjecting the state to their own control, while individual capitalists who long ago abandoned the attempt to compete with them will next seek to control them. And it's just that they just lay out the next century, as far as I'm concerned, in that in that statement. So I think when we think when I think about it being a new Gilded Age, I'm also thinking in those terms about monopoly capitalism. As you said, the dot com parallels the idea that that the new tech giants are basically, you know, they're cornering technology the way that Carnegie was cornering steel or whatever. And that the billions that they are creating in these kind of, you know, numbers that we find unimaginable. I mean, the political corruption at the time was also rampant and brazen, which we haven't really touched on yet. But just to give one example. The most notorious one of all, Boss Tweed from New York, who was a very, very corrupt politician in this period in the 1870s, 1880s. And he was eventually charged with stealing from the state and the government and the people, you know, somewhere between, and estimates vary, somewhere between $50 million and $200 million in the 1870s. In, in their money. In 1870s money, um, which is literally billions of dollars today. So he stole billions, right? The great part about the Boss Tweed story is that he died in jail. So there is some sense that although that corruption was rampant, they did something about it, which always gives me a little bit of hope. So when we're thinking about this being a Gilded Age, I think that those parallels are really important. But yes, also then people are making that connection to things like Gatsby, which is such a familiar version of it. I would say something to bear in mind when thinking about the Great Gatsby in relationship to the Gilded Age is that Scott Fitzgerald was born in 1896. He came of age with all of this stuff. This was his immediate background. This was the world he was born into, the way that our generation was, you know, kind of born into Vietnam and Watergate and the, and the consequences of that, or the way that we might date everything back to the Second World War. They dated everything back to the Civil War. That was when the new world emerged. That was the rupture that changed everything for their generation. So Gatsby will necessarily pick up on those kinds of themes and ideas because that was what shaped Scott Fitzgerald's imagination and his political imagination in particular. But his understanding of United States history was filtered back through all of those Gilded Age ideas. And and when he wants to write a critique of where America was going wrong, those are the parallels that he would 
very obviously see. As you describe it, and I think it's completely plausible that some of these tropes that we associate with the Gilded Age, they crop up repeatedly throughout American history. So there's almost a sense in which the whole thing has a kind of gilded quality to it. But it's also true, as you say, so we were born coming out of the 60s and 70s. There was that period which in Europe were the 30 golden years. But again, in in the American case, post-Second World War, the one period in a way when inequality was subject to some political control, where some of those widening gaps were narrowed, it looks increasingly like the exception. So there's almost a sense in which the phrase the Gilded Age makes it sound like there were these exceptional moments in American history which were gilded, but underneath it as a story of justice or progress. <laughs> Whereas it, you could say it's the other way around, that the gilded story is the story which has these moments of exception to it. Yeah, I think that's probably a more accurate description of American <laughs> history, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, you mentioned the American dream earlier, and I meant to say that when I did a history of the phrase itself, a kind of genealogy of the phrase, I discovered the earliest uses of it in the ways that we would mean it were in exactly this period. So 1895, right, and there's when they start to articulate this idea. And I think that There's a kind of truism they say about paradise, that paradise was invented to be lost, right? So that we could, that it's the moment at which it's lost that we start to talk about paradise. Similarly, I would say the American dream is invented in order to articulate a sense of failure. It comes into play when we have to say we're getting this wrong, not when we're actually talking about the aspiration and the ideal. It's a kind of attempt at self-correction. That need for self-correction is there from the start, absolutely. So the gap between the ideals of the nation and the reality are all, I mean, you know, start with the fact that it's a nation founded on the principle of liberty and freedom that is also founded in slavery, right? I mean, we can start with the most fundamental contradictions and take them all the way forward. And just to give an example, I mean, when Dickens went there in the 1840s, way before the Gilded Age, just this immediate visceral response, this is the nation of hypocrisy. Yeah. You know, that, that feeling Europeans have often, I mean, Europeans have their own hypocrisies too, I'm not, especially the English, but that, that feeling that this this land founded on these principles, it's just a sham. Yeah. That's the, I don't think there's any period, even in the golden years after the Second World War, where some visitors haven't thought, come off it. No, absolutely. And where some Americans haven't thought, come off it. Um, and that's, of course, what the great American writers have always done, is said, we need to tell the truth about this. And that's why those important novels that we think of as the novels of the American dream are precisely doing that, of saying that there is this great lie here and this great broken promise at the heart of this. And that that's what that tension is always going to be appealing to writers because that's the kind of friction that drives a story, that kind of irony and tension and hypocrisy and that kind of movement toward revelation that all is not as it seems and, you know, those kinds of ideas. And so I think that, you know, and also it's at this point that the phrase the great American novel is introduced into the conversation because they're trying to think about whether this huge mass of contradictions and this kind of cacophonous culture that has sort of burst, you know, ex nihilo, can it ever produce great art? Can it tell a story about its own life and its own culture in any way that has great social understanding or that has great insight? And the the phrase great American novel was coined in order, again, in a negative sense to say, no, it can't be done. They're not going to be able to do it. Or he said it was going to be, it was Charles DeForest, and he said it was going to be a century or more. Um, And I think it's in the 1880s that he said this, but again, right in, in this period. So let's finish with Trump. And we talked about this. Can we finish with Trump? (laughs) I would like to finish with Trump. uh, (laughs) Conclude. Uh, So you use the phrase Trumplandia. And the echoes are so strong. And there are points in American history where you you feel like you're seeing the foreshadowing of this. But it's also exceptional, this period. And and Trump himself, he's he's nothing like William Jennings Bryan, for a start. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's one of the ways. So we we use this word populism, but uh, there are so many different varieties. 
it's a big question, but should should we hold on to the exceptional when we think about Trump? Or because it's something you grapple with in your own writing, or, or do we need to find the antecedents to know how to anchor it? It's a really good question. It's a really difficult question. I actually just debated this with an American presidential historian I know. The other day he was he was here in Britain. They had a Trump conference. And so the great kind of presidential historians were getting together to talk about Trump. And I said to him, so did you guys draw any conclusions? Like, what do we need to know? And he said, yeah, they were really arguing for the continuities and seeing the ways in which the consolidation of the executive presidency is really kind of where where Trump's power is and and how it works. And I said, but surely that's structural. So it's like he's been put in a chute and he's going to keep going down that chute because anybody at this point in the executive presidency would move in the same direction. So to say that he and Obama made similar kinds of procedural choices is to say that's the only procedural choices that were open to them. So anybody in that office is going to do that. I personally think it's very, very important that we maintain the degree to which he is an exception, the degree to which it's not just his exploding of norms, but his open criminality. I mean, he is he has committed felonies in full public view while in the White House. And in my view, any society that says that it is based on the rule of law cannot turn a blind eye to that. We simply can't. So I'm among those who thinks that we need to impeach in order to demonstrate that we are upholding the rule of law and that we are saying this is not what we will allow a president to do. That doesn't mean that he'll be removed from office. And I understand that there is a political calculus there that is very much at the heart of Pelosi's question. She needs to hold her caucus together as well. So there are there was the Clinton effect where there was a sense that impeaching backfired against the Republicans, that it actually, that the impeaching party ends up looking bad. So there are questions there about whether it's politically expedient it seems to me that it's the right thing to do. And because then it will underscore that degree to which this is an exception that goes beyond what we can tolerate or should tolerate. Having said that, one of the reasons why I think that looking at examples like Boss Tweed and the rampant corruption of Tammany Hall and, and the other machines in America at that time, the Democratic machine in New York, which is the one I just mentioned that was known as Tammany, but also in Chicago, where I come from, still the most corrupt city in America. I mean, two of our last three governors are doing federal time for corruption. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And so that degree of corruption, you know, it really was so brazen and it was so rampant 100, 150 years ago in the Gilded Age in the period that we're talking about that I think we can sometimes lose track of how far we have come, how much we actually have insisted on certain kinds of norms of honesty and transparency. And that's not to sound like I don't understand about the corruption that American government is riddled with. I mean, Pelosi is now worth like 100 million or something. I mean, you know, how did you do that while you were in office? I'm not sure. And that's, you know, her kind of stated wealth. So the degrees to which the U.S. government has turned itself into a, you know, wealth generating machine for for people who are supposed to be in public service is is not something that we can overlook or ignore. But at the same time, if you compare to the moments before any of that kind of regulation, before any attempt at self-control or or, uh, self-regulation in those senses. In fact, we have improved. And Trump is just a massive step backwards, but maybe not even as far back as we once were. And in my view, we just have to keep correcting forward and saying we will not tolerate this. We've got to fix campaign finance law in America. We have to, you know, people always say to me, like, how are you what about the, the gun problem is so insane? How are you going to fix the gun problem? And I say that's actually campaign finance reform. Until you actually stop lobbying, which is just a polite name for bribery, you're not going to get anywhere. And that's why I read that corporate quote, because this is really about the, the ways in which corporate power is exerting control over democratic processes. And in that sense, again, Trump's not an exception. He's just the reductio ad absurdum of where, or maybe ad nauseum, of that direction of travel that we've been going in for a long time, as we've been saying. 
Sarah Churchwell's book is Behold America, A History of America First and the American Dream. It is excellent. We're not disappearing completely. We will be back in the middle of these guides over the summer to catch up with what's going on in the world. Our next guide is going to be to the Chinese Communist Party, and we'll be trying to answer the question, was it destiny or was it luck? My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>